Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Tori Weston. You're a fucking asshole. Those were the first words to my best friend of 15 years named Sean. <laughs> that and more. But first, in case you didn't know, we put out a newsletter about two times a month. It's a great way to keep up with all the things happening with Risk. Our live shows, our What's Your Story social events, and more. To sign up, just go to risk-show.com and plug your email address in the upper right corner. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now here's the show. Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this, rather dramatically, is Jerry Goldsmith behind me now with a track from the 1973 film Papillon called New Friend. And we're calling this week's episode New Friends, which is pretty much the same title, but with an S. In a little bit, we're going to hear from David J. Halperin with a story that takes place in Gaza in 1974. But before that, a story from Tori Weston, one of our favorites, that was recorded at a Risk Live show in New York last November. Here's Tori now with a story we call Uninvited. Let me take you back to the fall of 1991. I was 15, and I was the only black girl in the Woonsocket High School Spiritus Monday Poetry Club. And after a couple of weeks of attending the Poetry Club, I finally gathered 
the courage to read a poem. And not even a beat after I finished the last line, this 17-year-old white boy with a Steve Perry mullet said, well, that's depressing. And I turned around and yelled, you're a fucking asshole. Those were the first words to my best friend of 15 years named Sean. <laughs> See, this is what I loved about our friendship. From the beginning, we were very honest and weren't afraid to tell each other what we thought. But also, as we got to know each other, he got to see that I'm not always good at talking about my feelings, and so sometimes I would write them down. And he didn't think that that was weird. And he was also easy to talk to. One of the other awesome things about our friendship is that, like most Black people my age, I was raised in the church. And Black Baptist Church is a good three, four hours. So sometimes when church was going a little long and Deacon so-and-so was saying a long prayer, I would go down to the church basement and call Sean at home and say, hey, what are you doing right now? And he's like, oh, I just got up. I'm like, do you want to come to my church and pick me up? Because I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> and so he would come to church and this white boy would be peeking around and then I would leave church and we would go off and go wherever we were going to go. The other thing that was great about our friendship is that when I was in college and I did my semester abroad, I went to a college that owns a castle in the Netherlands. And I was away for a few months. And for the first time in his life, Sean wrote a letter. And he wrote an eight-page letter. And at the end of every page wrote, when are you coming home? And our friendship, you know, as much as we were like hanging out and everything, we also created our own holidays. So for instance, we had a holiday called Sean Ditches the Mullet Day, where we would have a moment of silence for when he finally cut off the curly part of his hair. The other holiday, which he loved to celebrate, was Tori consensually loses her cherry day, which we would celebrate by going out for cheesecake and Guinness. Because as he said, I was so awesome that one of my fellow Irishmen took your virginity. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we also grew up in Rhode Island. Now, Rhode Island may be the smallest state in the union, but Rhode Island is kind of weird. And this is what I mean by weird. So in Rhode Island, you can't just be black, white, Asian, Latino. People want to know where your people are from. So in our hometown of Woonsocket, we grew up around Polish, Portuguese, Italian, Irish, French Canadian, Laotian, Vietnamese, Puerto Rican, Cape Verdean, Liberian, Nigerian, and Southern Black people who moved up north in the 40s and 50s. So we grew up in a place where everyone got along. It wasn't weird to have interracial friendships, but also there were these like invisible lines of race. And so one of the first times that race started becoming a factor in our friendship was 
We were talking on the phone, like back in the day where the only way you could communicate was calling somebody and calling them up on the phone. And we're on the phone talking, and all of a sudden, his room door is open, and his mother is vacuuming into his room. Now, one of the things that we were talking about was, I think what prompted his mom to open the door is the word girlfriend. And he's like, Mom, I'm on the phone. I'm on the phone. And he's like, on the phone, a girlfriend? He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, I have a new girlfriend. I'm dating one of Tori's friends. And she immediately launched into this tirade of, I don't want brown grandbabies. Oh, my God, you need to find a pretty white girl. Why are you dating one of Tori's friends? And he was like, Mom, don't worry. She's not black. She's Latina. She's not? Oh, okay. Well, you know, look, Latina and Asian is fine, but you just can't date black girls. She didn't know I was on the phone. (laughs) And so he kicks his mom out of his room And he immediately's like, look, Tori, my mom's not racist. She really likes you. You know, I'm like, your mom knows that we're just friends, right? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she just, she just doesn't want me to date black girls. This was my first example of what I call New England racism, where it's like, we believe in equality. We want you to get a right education. Don't move to our neighborhoods. Don't date our kids. Um, and so another time that race couldn't be ignored in our friendship, was when Sean would drive to the other side of the city and come and pick me up at my house. Now, I lived next door to my grandmother, across the street from my cousins. My other cousins lived down the street that way. My other cousins lived down the street that way. And so my uncle was like, who's this white boy coming over here all the time, coming to pick you up? Because, you know, white boys only want one thing from black girls. And I was like, look, Sean's not my boyfriend. You know, he's not my type of white boy. You know, he just likes that, you know, he just comes over and we just hang out. And eventually, Sean would come over so much that, like, he would come over for dinner. We would be at family gatherings. He was so much a part of my family that he was my niece's godfather and he was a pallbearer at one of my uncle's funeral, which basically means that, and some people will know what I'm saying, Sean was invited to the cookout. (laughs) So as our friendship moved forward, as we got older, in my late 20s and early 30s, this is when our paths started to diverge. You see, Sean stayed in Rhode Island for college, and he was looking to do a business career, buy a house, have a wife, and kids. I moved to Boston. I stayed in Boston. I wanted to live in an artsy neighborhood that had like a thriving arts community. I kind of wanted a long-term boyfriend, but was cool with being single. Definitely wasn't sure about the marriage and kids thing. So also at the time in my life, in my late 20s, his early 30s, Sean met the woman that would be his fiance. To this day, he does not know that his male best friend and me set this up for him. <laughs> Um, he was feeling really down. We were like, we need to do something for our friend. This friend knew another friend. We tricked him into like going to meet up this person. And then now he was getting married to her. So while he was in love, I was experiencing loss for the first time in my life. Every time a 401 number popped up on my phone, it was news of a family member either in the hospital dying, everyone gathering to prayer, 
for them in hospice or somebody already died. So anytime in that time period that I was going to Rhode Island, I was going to a funeral. So one of the few times I got to go to Rhode Island that wasn't a funeral was Sean's engagement party. Now, at this time, I'm in Boston. I have a very diverse group of friends. I'm still living this like artsy, crazy life while his world was becoming more and more white. At his engagement party was his family, his work friends, all these other people that some of the people I've never met before. And so Sean sees me and he's like, hey, this is Tori, my token black friend. Now, back in the day when we used to do this, we knew what the joke was because, you know, he would show up to a place, Tori's my token black friend, but not knowing that part of Tori's family, all this kind of stuff. But for some reason, when he said this, the joke hit different. And immediately one of his work friends said, I have a black friend too. And I was like, okay. So I pulled him aside and I was like, hey, look, you know, when you were said that, you know, wasn't really cool. And he's like, you know what I meant? I'm like, I know what you meant. But then I stopped myself because it's his engagement party and I'm beginning to realize that I don't think he realizes that they weren't in on this joke. And I also was at a time where I couldn't really be honest with him. You see, because I was going through all this death, I didn't really, I feel like when you are the first person in your friends to have someone die, and when your friends ask you how you're doing, you can't be like, hey, Tori, how's it going? And I'm like, well, on Thanksgiving Day, I had to tell my grandfather that his son died, and it was the first time I ever saw my grandfather cry. How are you doing? You know, it's like I can't tell people how I am feeling. So I just kind of like pushed it down. And then sometimes it would sneak out and I would, you know, tell Sean or someone or another friend how I was feeling. And immediately it was like, someone get Tori a drink. We need to cheer her up. Yeah, she really needs a drink over here. So I stopped talking about how I was feeling. So at the party, you know, when someone's like, hey, Tori, how are you doing? I'm like, I would bring up sports because at that time, Boston was like the bomb. <laughs> We're winning everything. And I was also bringing up, I was just asking questions about, hey, what do you do? How do you know this person? And just taking the heat off me so no one would see how sad I was. So the last time Sean and I saw each other face to face, I had just attended my Aunt Ruby's funeral. I called Sean. He knew I was in Rhode Island for a funeral. I let him know, hey, can you come and pick me up from the church? And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take, pick you up from the church. I'll bring you to the train station and stuff. So we stop in a bar waiting before my train goes. And he had just met with the priest that was going to officiate the wedding. And he is excited. And he's like, oh, my God, we just took these compatibility tests and we put the same thing down. And I'm like, okay, that's awesome. He's like, oh, and we're going to have barbecue at the wedding. Yeah, we got a barbecue caterer. We're going to have barbecue. And don't worry, we're going to have Magners because I know you love Magners. But this is going to be awesome. And I'm sitting there gripping my pint of Magners, trying not to cry. And he just went on and on about all the stuff that was about to happen for this wedding. And then I could not wait to get on that train to Boston. So when I got home, all my feelings started bubbling up. 
So I wrote a post on MySpace. You know MySpace back in the innocent days of social media. And in that post on MySpace, I just let all of these feelings come out. And so one of the things, and this is a direct line from one of the posts was, I've always told people that I've loved this person enough to know that we could never be more than just friends. And now I realize that I said that to let myself off the hook. So being candid in this blog at the risk of regretting this, I'm going to say I didn't say what needed to be said tonight. Instead, I said what he wanted to hear. Now, that might sound like, oh my God, she's confessing that she's in love with him. And that so was not the case. What I wanted to say to him was attending all of these funerals, even attending for one week, attending two funerals in one week. Attending all of these funerals was making death real. I'm in my late 20s. Death should be something that's distant and it's in my face. I wanted to tell him that tonight at this funeral, I saw what regret looks like. I saw someone looking in the casket to someone that they couldn't say, I love you, I care about you. I'm so glad you're a part of my life. What I wanted to tell him was that I was scared. We've been in each other's lives for so long and I am scared of losing you because now more than ever, I need my friend. But what I said to him before I got on that train was, I'm fine, I'm doing okay, but I wasn't okay. So the tragedy of that post was, first, it was not my best writing. <laughs> it was all that grief just coming up. And you know, Sean, who knew me, knew that I wasn't good talking about feelings, knew I wrote feelings down. But I ended the post by saying, a part of me does not want to attend this wedding. But if the shoe is on the other foot, he would be showing up for me. He would be coming to this wedding, making sure that both of us were going to have the time of our lives. Well, less than 48 hours of posting that on MySpace, his 401 number popped up on my phone, and I received news of another kind of death. I received the first and only voicemail in 15 years that he sent me. So back in the day, before you didn't have cell phones and stuff like that, like you would know when to call people, you knew people's schedules, and Sean would call until he got me on the phone. And even when we did have cell phones, he would call, hang up, wait an hour, call, hang up, until he got me on the phone. But this time he left a voicemail message that said, my fiance and I feel like you're not supportive of our relationship and feel it's best you don't attend our wedding. At the time I was listening to the voicemail, I had my email open, and I also received an email saying, your gift has arrived at so-and-so's house. Wow. <laughs> so I have a group of friends who knew us both, and some people wonder, was it the MySpace post? Was it his fiance reading the post and then telling him not to invite me to the wedding? Or was it that we were growing apart. I will never know. 
At the same time, I had a friend who actually <laughs> lived in Micronesia, and he was also getting married at the same time. And this friend told me that, you know, sometimes when people are getting married, they continue to put in the effort in their friendships. They continue to keep their established relationships. But there are some people who choose to put all the emotional well-being onto one person. And he said to me, I hope to be part of the first group. It's been 17 years since that happened. We have not crossed paths. However, my takeaway from this is this. This friendship breakup made room for what I call my ride or die friends. There were some people who read that MySpace post that night and knew Tori doesn't talk about feelings and immediately got in touch with me because they knew that I was drowning in grief. This group of friends kind of rose up at a time when I really needed somebody and I thought it was going to be this particular somebody. And it ended up being a bunch of people I did not know who would do this for me. And they weren't afraid of our racial and cultural differences. They weren't afraid of my emotional messiness. They were comfortable about the fact that I loved them deeply. But they were also one of the people that like really showed me, and one of them is here tonight, um, that you know, despite your life, there are those people who are true ride or die. So I may have been uninvited to Sean's wedding, but that uninvited introduced me to the loves of my life. Thank you. Tyler, the creator behind me now, and we just heard from Tori Weston, who you can find on Instagram at ToriWestonWriterArtist.com. Folks, one of our Patreon patrons, Melanie, recently sent us this note with their donation during our unfortunately ongoing struggle to keep Risk running. She said, Thank you so much, Kevin, and the Risk team. Somehow this show has helped me with my confidence. 
Maybe it's the time spent smiling and laughing at humans being human. If I get money somehow, I will happily send a bunch to you all. Thanks for doing what you do. Your whispered, we'll be right back and we're back is one of the most comforting rhythms in my head. Thanks for being you and sharing so honestly. Continue to take care. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. You know, getting messages like this from our fans is so encouraging to us. It really is. And if you're one of our very much appreciated Patreon patrons and you only listen to our ad-free episodes over there, you, you might not know what Melanie means by those whispered messages. Well, over on the free feed where the episodes are supported by ads, this is what it sounds like whenever we have to cut to a commercial. of Patreon, like I was doing before that break, we have something so special there this week, and that is that I recorded a new check-in. I'll tell you, these check-ins contain so much of the history of the show behind the scenes now, and this is how the very beginning of the latest one sounds. 48 hours ago, we had the final session of the well-being workshop that I led for the very first time, this workshop that I called Practice. That was the official name of it, just Practice. And the whole thing had so much to do with risk that I felt moved to record a Patreon check-in about it because it was during a Patreon check-in about seven months ago that I had the idea of creating this workshop to begin with. That's right, it's full circle. And you know what? We're gonna make this particular check-in free to access even if you're not a Patreon patron because I really feel that in leading that well-being practices workshop, I had a profound experience of what the risk audience is made of. So it doesn't matter if you personally were never particularly interested in being a part of that specific workshop. It's just a beautiful meditation, this check-in is, on the unique nature of our particular audience and how in one way or another, I wanna do even more meaningful engagement with the risk audience, more workshops like that one, but also other sorts of get togethers uh, or events or activities, because I feel like this is a year where I'm gonna need more of that supportive, open-hearted presence that risk listeners bring to the table and that is just so special. So go to patreon.com slash risk to hear the new check-in. It's there for free, even if you're not a member. But if you do become a member, there's so much more where that came from 
at patreon.com slash risk. Now, next, we're going to hear from David J. Halperin. You may recall David told that incredibly beautifully told story, My First Alien Landing, on the Close Encounters episode last year. This one today is a very different sort of close encounter. So without further ado, here's David Halperin now with a story we call Grace in Gaza. This is a story about Gaza. It's almost 50 years old, and whether it has any lessons for the current horrific situation in Gaza and Israel, I'm speaking in the middle of November 2023, I really don't know. You're going to have to decide that one for yourself. It was... 1974, early in the spring. I was a 26-year-old grad student from the United States, spending the year doing research, living at an archaeological institute in Jerusalem. This was Jerusalem, Israel, but only a few years before It had been Jerusalem, Jordan. It was the eastern Arab part of the city, which had been captured by the Israelis in the Six-Day War. We were a group of mostly Americans. One of us uh, was an Englishman. And all, except me, were Christians, including one Catholic priest. I was the only Jew living in the Institute, and as far as I know, the only Jew who had ever lived in the Institute. Until the Six-Day War, until Israel captured this part of the city, it was off-limits to anyone known to be Jewish, as was all the rest of Jordan. It was a different time, a different world almost, There was nothing like the current hatred and dread between Israelis and Palestinians. The Israeli occupation of the territories it had captured in the Six-Day War, the West Bank of the Jordan, the Gaza Strip, that was all just beginning. Nobody had any idea that it was going to drag on for decades and that the bitterness would grow generation after generation. But even back then, Gaza was a scary place. If you were Jewish, you thought twice before going there. And when the director of the Archaeological Institute organized a field trip to Gaza so we could examine what was left of an ancient synagogue there, he gave us a warning. Don't let on that you speak Hebrew. And that warning was really directed at me. 
because nobody else in the Institute spoke a usable amount of Hebrew. Many of the Gazans work in Israel and they've picked up a fair amount of Hebrew, so they may try to address you in Hebrew. Pretend you don't know. Answer them in English. Act like you haven't understood anything they've said. I nodded. It was good advice. But until that day, I never understood how very difficult it is to pretend you don't know a language that you in fact know. Someone addresses you in it, you turn and, and look before you know you've done it. And it becomes clear you know exactly what he said. There were about 10 or 12 of us. We piled into two cars and drove down from Jerusalem in the mountains to Gaza on the seacoast, about an hour and a half ride. It was a gray, warmish day. And we visited these ruins. They were sheltered within a makeshift corrugated iron shack. And I was chatting with a, uh, let's call him a friend. And we sort of wandered outside the shack away from the ruins, chatting. And before we knew it, we had gone a bit farther than we'd imagined. And before we knew it, we saw we were being approached by a group of teenage boys. There were five or six of them. They were all about my height. I was five foot seven, closely cropped hair. Uh, One of them was a bit taller than the rest. And there was one whose shirt was pulled out from his trousers, showing his T-shirt and his heavily muscled chest. And it seemed like he was the spokesman for the group. They approached us. You want to know, you know, who who are you? What are you doing here? And we tried to explain we were from, we were archaeologists. I wasn't really an archaeologist, but I became honorarily one for that occasion. But they had some trouble communicating in English. And uh, the boy says, uh, do you speak Hebrew? And my friend, friend in scare quotes, says, oh, well, I speak a little bit of Hebrew. But him, he points to me, he speaks excellent Hebrew. And then with a big grin, he saunters off back to where the group was. And there I was, alone with these boys who had come a good deal closer, and I saw were arranging themselves in a circle around me. This was not a comfortable situation, and I don't know whether at the time I felt frightened. It's happened to me more than once in my life that I'll be in a dangerous situation, not feel fear at the time, and then wake up the next morning shuddering with my heart pounding. The t-shirted boy says, 
in Hebrew. Do you speak Hebrew? And there really wasn't any point in my denying it. I said, yes, I do. And you read Hebrew. Well, yes, I am doing my research in Hebrew. Do you write Hebrew? Yes, I do, not with the greatest fluency, but I do. And then the boy gives me a smile that was not precisely warm and welcoming and says, So you might just as well be an Israeli. I looked back up toward that corrugated metal shack. I thought perhaps my so-called friend, whom I still couldn't quite believe had abandoned me, had told the group what was happening and they would be emerging, so at least I would not be alone. But there was no sign of them. And I looked around at the boys who had drawn just a few inches closer, and I saw they were carrying school books. They were clearly high school students. And I peered at one of the books. And I had studied Arabic for a few years as an undergraduate, and I was never fluent in it, but I, back then at least, I could read it with some proficiency. And I read off one of the books, Tariq al-Alam wal-Arab, History of the World and of the Arab. Instantly, the atmosphere began to change. The boys came up to me, but now showing me their books. Here, see, can you read this? Try this. And I I took the history of the world and of the Arabs. I opened to the table of contents, which is where in an English book it would be the index, since Arabic, like Hebrew, was written from right to left. And I looked at the table of contents, and there were many words I didn't understand, but I could make out the words in the different chapter titles for Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, and then we got to the Arabs. And there was a reference to the Prophet Muhammad, And following the word Nabi, prophet, there was a four-letter Arabic abbreviation, which I happened to know that it stood for Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. May God bless him and give him peace, which is what one says whenever one mentions the prophet. And I read that aloud. And at that point, when I did that, the transformation which had begun really the instant that they saw I could read Arabic, however haltingly, and the haltingness made no difference, that that transformation was complete. And they kept on handing me things to read. Do you understand this? Translate that. And we were playing a game. It was not a test. It was a game. They enjoyed it 
more if I got something wrong, which I very often did, where they had to correct me, say, no, 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 this means, means something else. And it was a jolly game. And to tell you the truth, I was having fun. And I don't know how long it lasted. It may have been five minutes, it may have been ten, but that at last my party came out of that shack and I said, you know, these are, are my friends, I'm going to have to rejoin them. And we parted with Ma'as-Salama, go with peace. And I left my new friends and I never saw them again. This was the only time I've ever been to Gaza. And I've often thought back on that episode. These boys would be in their middle or late 60s now, if they're still alive. And it's a measure of the tragedy of Gaza, of Israel, of that whole region, that I have to add that if they're still alive. That did our encounter impact them the way it did me? Do they remember that moment of grace that we shared? Does any of them tell their children or their grandchildren about their encounter with a Jew who might as well have been an Israeli and how we had for a few minutes a good time together? When language, in my case, my fractured Arabic, made us friends, I don't know and I, I'm never going to know. About 30 years after this incident, right about 2004, my wife and I joined the Unitarian Universalist Church. We became UUs, as Unitarian Universalists are known. And we went out to dinner with a group of our new co-religionists. And uh, I, I told this story. And I said, you know, I realize that nothing came of this. It had no impact of any kind. And one of them asked me the typical UU question, which is, how do you know? How do you know what impact a small good thing can have? When you throw a stone into the pond, how do you know how far its ripples go? And I had to admit, because I would like to believe it, that I really don't know, and that maybe something good had come of this. All I know is that it was indeed a moment of grace. Most of us have seen the bumper stickers, shit happens. Not all of us, I think, have seen the counter bumper sticker, grace happens. And both are telling the truth. Shit does happen. Grace does happen. May grace happen in Gaza and in Israel 
for these two peoples, the Palestinians and the Israelis, who have had more than enough, far beyond their fair share of shit. And may it happen soon. Just how much does it have to hurt Before you let go the pain And just how deep does it have to be Before you yearn to be free again Every wound can lock you away You can walk or you can choose to remain But every day can pass you by While you were holding the key This is how it turns This is what we do This is Risk. This is Peter Gabriel behind me now, a song called Live and Let Live that actually just came out about a month ago. And we just heard from David J. Halperin, who recently completed a novel, The October Man, set in Israel during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. David is currently on the hunt for a literary agent to help publish this important novel rooted in his own experience of wartime Israel. So get in touch if you have a lead. He's at davidhalperin.net. And I hope and I pray that people speaking up leads to an end to the horrific violence over there. We know what happens from history when a whole population of people is dehumanized by propaganda. We know what happens when violence is used as an excuse to escalate more violence. We know what happens when too many people are too scared or too weary to pay attention or speak up or just put their heads in the sand. You know, a little over 20 years ago, a lot of us on the left started marching in the streets saying, hey, maybe it's not such a great idea to start dropping bombs on the civilians of Iraq who had nothing to do with 9-11 anyway. And many of us got fired for it or lost friendships over it and watched all the powers of the media and the government just shame and silence us. And of course, after a colossal loss of life later, it turns out we were right. Of course we were. It's the old pattern where the war hawks 
whip everyone up into a frenzy of seeing another population of people as having lives that just don't matter as much as other lives in order to drop bombs on them. But on the day I'm recording this, there are thousands in Tel Aviv protesting and calling for Netanyahu's government to resign. So that is a lot of bravery on the part of those folks. And it's a very hopeful sign. So folks, if you have stories of your own about how compassion and empathy stood up to violence, pitch them to us at risk-show.com slash submissions. One of the most powerful ways to build empathy is through hearing each other's stories. Who knows how far the ripples may go. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, that'll just about do it for this week, folks. But come back on Thursday when we'll be sharing another compilation of some of our favorite stories from our archives. This time, the best of true crime stories. But that'll be on Thursday. And folks, today is the day. Take a risk. throw a stone into the pond how do you know how far its ripples go every day i wake up with a single dream running through my head to throw a tiny stone into a mighty stream and watch the ripples as they spread well we fall in line follow every rule But is that something we should really take pride in? Cause we're treading water in the kiddie pool.
When there are oceans, we could turn the tide in. If you want to make a ripple, if you want to make a wave, playing safe and thinking small doesn't move the ball at all. There's humanity to save. Can we really make a ripple? With our feet up while we float, too afraid to rock the boat. How far the ripples go Do you want to make a ripple, ripple, ripple I think you want to make a ripple, ripple, ripple Now if we choose this dude One goes to two, then four And then it jumps from four to eight Yes, soon you guys it multiplies to thousands more Can you hear it reverberate? Then to millions and to billions And it never ends Change is gaining some traction Reaching other planets Maybe aliens From one man we began a chain reaction If we wanna make a ripple That could turn into a wave Time to be what we're about yeah. Gotta turn this mother it's just called being brave We need more than just a ripple Make the choice to take a chance Let's put on our big boy pants If we only skim the surface We'll never know just how far the ripples go Do you want to make a ripple, ripple, ripple? I think you want to make a ripple, ripple, ripple Can we redeem the unredeemable? the worst of us there is some decency there i know that we can achieve something miraculous if we only dare